Hello and welcome to Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path. My name is Mike Allen and every other Tuesday I bring you a fresh, fascinating story about historically significant people, places, and events from Connecticut's long and fabled past. Stories that have relevance far beyond the state's borders. Today on Amazing Tales, we conclude the two-part series on just how Connecticut developed over its 400 years from colonial days to modern day. In these episodes, we're not focusing on dates or bios of famous people. Rather, we're looking at how the early settlers and those who followed dealt with the topography they were left by the Ice Age, how they managed to get around by transportation to enable trade and growth, and generally how they figured out how to create the state we have today. Our special guest, Richard DeLuca, is back to help us put all this together in the proper perspective. Last time, we introduced Cheshire, Connecticut author Richard DeLuca. He's published two incredible books over the past decade, Post Roads and Iron Horses and Paved Roads and Public Money. In those books, Richard gives a comprehensive overview and analysis of how three factors interacted to create the Connecticut in which we live today. Number one, improvements in transportation technology itself. Number two, the way these modes of transportation were financed. And finally, the geographical lay of the land that Mother Nature left us. We also discussed last time the concept that transportation overcomes the limitation of distance. Said another way, the faster and more efficient the transportation, the further we can go in a reasonable amount of time. It's the difference between going cross-country on horseback or on a jet airplane. You might never have seen the West Coast if all you had was your horse. I should mention that there's so much to discuss that I couldn't squeeze it all into a two-part series, so you'll find separate episodes in the future on individual topics such as stagecoaches, the Farmington Canal, and the Merritt Parkway. We talked in part one about life in the 16 and 1700s. Relatively speaking, development was slow compared to the whiplash-causing developments that the Industrial Revolution would bring in the 1800s. We literally leapfrogged from the early earthen roads to machine-based technological advancements. We start with the, the basic earthen turnpikes and go from that to canals, steamboats, railroads, electric trolleys. It was just one system supplanting a previous one. And each time, I mean, it didn't happen just for fun. It happened because each mode was either quicker, uh, cheaper, or provided some aspect of transportation, like carrying bulk goods, that another one couldn't. The first transportation technologies built off the power source that inventors had available namely horsepower. Steam and electricity were still years away. They had to make do with what they had, but they were ingenious. An entire industry was begun organized around stagecoaches. Stagecoaches were the first form of mass transit in the U.S. While we tend to think of the wild, wild west when we think of stagecoaches, or at least I do, the truth is that stagecoaches were all over Connecticut in the early 1800s. For example, you could schedule a trip from inland Connecticut to New York City. You could get up in Litchfield at 2 o'clock in the morning, catch a stagecoach to Bridgeport or Norwalk, and then catch a steamship from there to New York City. 
You could even do a round trip the same day, but it would be a very long day, and you'd only have a couple of hours in the city. Still, it was workable, and it allowed for the transaction of business and the visitation of friends and loved ones. Richard says that the early Pony Express riders used to have to spend six days riding from New York to Boston on one of the original three post roads that went through Connecticut, essentially where Interstates 95, 91, and 84 go today. Once the stagecoach industry was fully developed around 1830, the time from New York to Boston was cut in half to just three days. New Haven developed as the center of the stagecoach building empire in the United States. Many products were exported from there throughout the U.S. and even to other countries around the world. Horses were good for more than stagecoaches, though. When the railroad industry was in its absolute infancy around 1830, Richard says the idea of mixing horses and rails took off. The first urban transportation were horse railroads horse-drawn rail cars or trolley cars that uh, were built, you know, on above ground in, in a lot of cities. Richard says the technology wasn't too much of a stretch. All you had to do is lay down a few tracks you, and you build the carriage. You already got horses. You know, that was a, a major improvement. Then when electricity came along, of course... Uh, that became the motive power. But the concept was still critical in the development of cities. It was a first step in commuting. Nobody got on a horse railroad to go to the next town. You got on a horse railroad to get across town. Later, electric streetcars and trolleys would not only provide connections across the expanse of the budding cities in Connecticut, they would also start to connect cities. As each big city got a trolley network around town, you know, certain cities would connect with one another, so you had what were called interurban trolleys or rail railways. This was the precursor to full railroad systems, the size and cost of which didn't always make sense for every town to have. Intertown trolley systems used to exist in many locales and used to extend on purpose to increase ridership to amusement parks that were starting to pop up around the state such as Lake Compounds in Bristol, Lake Quasipog in Middlebury, and Lake Kenosha in Danbury. Richard says the network got so well developed that at one point it was technically possible to take trolleys from New York to Boston. He said it may take you a full day and you might have to change six different trolley car systems to do it, but it could be done. Despite these advancements, in those days getting around Connecticut and getting through Connecticut still remained largely a matter of using horsepower and earthen roads. And the question the government officials had to wrestle with remained, how do you finance all these necessary infrastructure improvements? An issue that frankly still plagues us today. At the end of our first part to this two-part podcast series, we had introduced the idea that there was a change brought about as the Revolutionary War began. Until then, the state had relied on something called statute labor to build roads. Essentially, that meant that farmers, by law, had to devote a certain number of days each year to pitch in on the building and upkeep of roads in their communities. They were expected to bring their horses, oxen, picks, shovels, and everything else with them. As we learned, they also brought a bottle of rum. By the time of the Revolutionary War, though, it was clear that that wouldn't work anymore because so many farmers had joined George Washington's army to fight the British, especially from Connecticut, which was a very pro-independent state. 
Instead, governments turn to taxation to raise money, to hire people to take care of the road and bridge infrastructure. Richard says the idea worked for a while, but once the debt piled up from fighting the Revolutionary War, a different approach was needed. You couldn't tax people enough to come up with the money. People didn't have the money, you know, except for a wealthier subclass of people or merchants you know, there wasn't that kind of money floating around after the war. So they turned to private enterprise and they created what's called a joint stock company. This new financing model, the same as corporations on the stock exchange use today, opened up new possibilities for building especially shorter distance roads of up to, say, 20 miles. To raise the money, they would, the company would, sell shares to shareholders okay so if you didn't have enough money to build a road but you had an extra 20 bucks and you wanted to invest it these folks would pay you interest on it and their job was to build and maintain this particular section of roadway and in return for that they were allowed to charge a toll that's right a toll that's where it all began. It was part of the financial plan for making the building of expensive highways and bridges possible. These firms were granted a charter by the state government, allowing them to build and operate the road. This was an act of the legislature, in effect, to create a company. And here's what we want you to do. And it was spelled out, you know from this tree to that farm to whatever. It also meant that these roads were now privately owned. So to protect the public, the charters set certain limits. A joint stock company could only make a certain profit, using the tolls to recoup their investment and make a little extra, usually 8 to 12%. This would allow them to pay their shareholders' interest. Once the profit ceiling was hit, the infrastructure covered by the charter had to revert back to town ownership. These arrangements were overseen by groups of officials who would monitor the expenses and the conditions of the infrastructure. The beauty of the system was that it allowed the necessary capital to be raised at a time when taxation couldn't do it because of all the debt. It also marked the start of the American capitalistic society as we know of it today. And Richard says it wasn't a one-size-fits-all type of approach. For an individual, for a farmer driving a herd of sheep, for a farmer uh, hauling something in a wagon... For a stagecoach, there was different gradation of fees. Richard says the model was adopted across the rest of the young country. There's absolutely no fairer way to collect money to repair a road than to get it from the people who use the road. They're the ones who are doing the damage, so they should pay to repair it. Not everybody was in favor of this approach. Do we want these corporations in our town? you know, giving up our land to these people to do who knows what with. And some towns put up quite a stink. And just because you built a toll booth didn't mean people were going to pay the toll. This left a number of chartered companies falling short of the expected 8 to 12% profit windfall. Guess what? They never made anywhere near that amount of money. There were all sorts of ways to avoid paying tolls, including folks who would sort of wear a path around the toll booth in the woods and the travelers would leave the turnpike 
use this little path through the woods and come out on the other side and then continue on the turnpike. Those little diversions were called shunpikes. In fact, Richard says one town took its views to a bit of an extreme along a country road that is today Connecticut Route 10. The town of Hamden stepped in and they built their own road from the center of town all the way around to just beyond the last toll station in town. Just to make sure you got the point, they called it Shunpike Road. Today, the road in Hamden is known as Evergreen Avenue. You can look it up on Google Maps. Richard says that there are still several towns, though, in Connecticut, which have roads using the actual name of Shunpike. Because of the toll ducking, Richard says only about 10 of the 100 companies that were chartered to build roads actually made a profit as intended and survived all the way through the 1800s. One of the companies that was successful was the Derby Company. They owned the road leading from Derby into New Haven. They had two important things going for them. The road was a main gateway into an important city, and number two, the geology of the area didn't allow for the creation of any of those bypass roads. They didn't go out of business until the 1890s, early 1900s. They were just raking in the money, but never enough to have to surrender the charter. That's another thing. If you saw you were getting to that point, all you have to do is go out and fix the road, spend some money. Now, before we proceed further, a quick piece of trivia from Richard DeLuca, a fascinating insight into how the word turnpike came from the early toll booth systems. It was a hub of a wheel with pikes sticking out, spikes, so that you had to turn the pike to get through. That's where the name came from. Think of the turnstiles in the New York City subway system and how you have to push through them once you've swiped your card. But not all toll booths were like that. But a lot of times it was just a house and there was a fellow, the, the toll keeper, uh, who was given the house as a residence, but his job was to make sure he got money from everybody that went by. On Route 25, the toll was a long wooden arm it was raised and lowered to stop travelers from passing until they paid their toll. It was right on the border of Newtown and Monroe, where the shopping center today, called Tollgate Plaza, is located. In the early 1800s, the technology of steam locomotives and railroads started to make its way into the U.S. It took time and money to build the railroad tracks and the train engines and cars, but once it was all done, rail had taken over. The trip from New York to Boston had been six days for the Pony Express, three days with an active stagecoach network, and now by express train, the trip was down to just six hours. As that distance is conquered, your whole worldview changes. The way you do business, the way you raise your family, the way the opportunities that you may have. Well, now I can go to college in Boston. It's only six hours away. But if financing a new road or bridge was challenging, the cost of creating a railroad system was staggering. Huge sums of money had to be raised from shareholders. And the issue suddenly arose of investment risk versus reward. What happens if this technology damages something? Who's responsible? And you can watch the legal system change as you watch the way they treat railroads. At first, there was a huge roadblock to overcome. Now, if you think about it, if you currently invest in stocks of any kind, 
you know that the most you can lose is the actual amount of money you invested to buy shares in the company in the first place. If the company goes bust, you don't get your money back, but you don't lose anything else. The risk was much more serious in those days when these joint stock companies first began. It was thought that legally everybody who owned stock in that company was legally responsible for the debts of the company. Meaning if a train went off the tracks, ran into a commercial complex, and killed dozens of people, authorities could come after all of your assets and the assets of your fellow shareholders to pay for all the damages. Well, once that was rectified so that only the assets of the company could be attacked by somebody who was filing a lawsuit, investments into railroads and all sorts of other enterprises flourished. Still, there was another concern for shareholders. Why would you invest your money in some elaborate system if somebody else could come along and build one right next to you? Maybe we should eliminate the competition for them so that if you own a, uh, a bridge company or you run a ferry Nobody else can come along and build one next to you because we figured that's an incentive to you making the investment. The right balance needed to be found between completely eliminating competition and forming a monopoly or having limited franchise rights, say for a certain geographical area or a certain length of time. Again, once all those wrinkles were ironed out, investments and growth of the transportation system moved ahead. By the year 1900, trains literally crisscrossed Connecticut in the hundreds each day. They serviced remote dairy farmers who needed a faster way to get their milk to more populous areas. If you hike any of the many rail trails in Connecticut, placed where now abandoned train lines used to run, you'll see that many of them went into beautiful countryside in sparsely populated areas. Well, that's because that's where the farms were. Trucks have replaced trains for transporting milk, but in the day... Rail lines went everywhere. Trains, of course, had many advantages over the horse and buggy era for carrying items, but one in particular made them unstoppable. Horses were, pun intended, saddled by this deficiency. The friction between the wheel and the dirt is just too heavy to get for the horses. You need bigger and bigger teams. You know, and you just the economics just goes out the window. With trains, a steel wheel on a steel rail glided more smoothly, removing the barrier caused by the friction. But Richard says that the earliest train lines in Connecticut were very dangerous because they didn't always have access to enough steel up front to make the rails. So they had to improvise. They basically put a thin layer of iron on top of a wooden rail. Okay, and eventually in the use, those pieces used to flip up and curl and break into the carriages sometimes. Once the Civil War ended in 1865, the supply of steel became more reliable and that issue slowly started to disappear. But derailments continued and riding trains in the early days was considered hazardous. So why did people ride them? Well, it was the promise of a much reduced travel time. That was all the incentive some travelers needed to hop aboard, even with all those issues. And trains created an interesting economic question for society to contend with, namely, who made the money in transportation? The money is not in building the infrastructure, which is the charter you get. The money is in the shipping. And that was usually not the same company, almost never, that owned 
the infrastructure. For example, canal builders owned the canal, but they had to fix it when it leaked, and they didn't get any of the money from the goods that were being shipped on it. People who built the roads didn't make nearly as much money as the people who ran the stagecoach lines over them, delivering people and the U.S. mail. With railroads, for the first time, companies owned both the infrastructure and the shipping components. That's what led to railroad tycoons amassing huge fortunes, the Vanderbilts, J.P. Morgan, and others. Beyond the money, Richard says trains are simply a lot of fun. As someone who has traveled twice across country on Amtrak, uh, I, I'm telling you, it, it was one of the highlights of my, of my life, taking a cross-country trip from San Francisco to New York on Amtrak. I mean, if you got the time, I, to me personally, there's no better way to travel. Today, however, trains are facing substantial financial issues. New Haven Commuter Service, we went to New York, the most heavily traveled link commuter link in the nation all right and it can't pay for itself and we've got um of course bus service and right here through cheshire to go to waterbury or new haven it's heavily subsidized connecticut is so suburban today that mass transit has trouble surviving there are very few large population centers and the towns in between tend to use zoning to exclude multifamily housing to the extent allowed by law the economics of running mass transit through sparsely populated towns simply doesn't add up. The early mass transit systems in Connecticut, stagecoaches, trolleys, and steam railroads, drew many people to live in the cities. It's where the railroad hubs were. There were cities such as Hartford, New Haven, and Bridgeport, which had flat land where the trains could easily run. Their populations grew tremendously compared to the other locations. Since trains weren't as good going up hills, towns like Litchfield, that had been huge stagecoach hubs, kind of faded away when the trains came along. Now they attract visitors interested in history and the general beauty of the Litchfield Hills. Railroads tended to be based in the river valleys because that's where industrial centers were outside the cities. They were based along the riverbanks that flowed in the valleys between the hills. Well, yet another new technology was about to turn these train hub cities on their heads in Connecticut. But around them, you know, you get to the edge of New Haven, there's nothing but fields, right? There's farms, there's orchards, there's all sorts of open space. But you couldn't really live there because it'd take you too long to get to work because the work was in the cities, in the factories. Then the automobile comes along, and now all of a sudden, the other end of that commute can be anywhere you want it to be. When automobiles finally emerged on the scene in the 1900s, it changed the entire concept of transportation as it had been developing until then. Because it was the first time since the horse and buggy that you could get in a, a vehicle at your house and go to the front door of someplace else. Just like the technologies before the automobile, however, cars needed an infrastructure, a network of roads to get the vehicles around, and earthen roads had to be upgraded to paved roads. In order for this network to be efficient, it had to get cars everywhere that a driver might want to go, even if it was off the beaten path and in a less frequented corridor. Roads servicing population densities in cities will always draw plenty of use. It's the more rural sections of the system that won't be traveled as much, even though they're important to have for the occasional need. And that's why some parts of the road network 
according to Richard, will always be dependent on subsidies or taxes to survive. I mean, that's why the federal government, when it came time to build the interstate system, said, no, we can't finance it with tolls. Because there's always going to be some link of road that we're never going to be able to collect enough tolls. Or if you do, the tolls are going to have to be so much higher that nobody's going to use it, simply because of the density of the population where people are living and where they want to go. With all of our advancements, Richard says there have been trade-offs. Trade-offs with the environment. It concerns him more and more these days. He says we need to remember that we rely on our ecosystem for basic elements that sustain us in life. All living things have to survive, and uh, which means you got to go get your nutrition somewhere. I mean, it's that basic. The only organisms that have managed uh, to stand in one place and, and do that are trees and, and shrubs who, who collect their nutrition through leaves. But to reproduce, even they look to the wind to, to, and, and animals to spread seeds and whatnot. And yet our many technological advancements have often come at the expense of the same ecosystem we rely on. Numbers of people, consumption of goods, technology, impact on nature, that's the story of the last 500 years of Western civilization, actually of the planet. Richard says that we need to get back to the notion of an environmental ethic, meaning that we share our habitat with animals and plants that also need the land to flourish. This includes land that we're using up more and more as time goes on. Richard wonders if we can find the right balance as a global society. We need to kind of extend, broaden that idea of rights to include everything that's alive, you know, including the landscape, which of course is the habitat for all of these other pieces of the environment that we depend on. That's it for another episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. I want to thank my guest for both this episode and the previous one that's part of this two-part series, Richard DeLuca. Richard's the author of two must-read books on how transportation drove development in Connecticut and the region, Post Roads and Iron Horses, and Paved Roads and Public Money. Again, be on the lookout for separate podcasts on Stagecoaches, the Farmington Canal, the Merritt Parkway, and the Housatonic Railroad. In between episodes, please follow me on either Facebook at Amazing Tales CT or Instagram, also Amazing Tales CT. I'd love to hear from you. If you liked what you heard today, spread the word with your friends and family. See you next time here on Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy.